Luck on Sunday, proudly sponsored by Albasti Ecruel Dubai. Welcome to the Luck on Sunday podcast, a weekly audio digest of all the best bits of Luck on Sunday, the show on Racing UK, free to air every Sunday from nine o'clock that brings you the best guests and insight from around the racing world. Luck on Sunday, proudly sponsored by Albasti Ecruel Dubai that my guests who joined me for the entirety of the programme are not special. They are very special indeed. Greg Wood from The Guardian returns and debuting on Luck on Sunday, Henry Daly, a long way from Downton Hall in Shropshire, but we're eternally grateful. Thank you very much for coming in. Good to be here. And I hope it gave you the excuse to have a night out in London or something didn't similar. quite work that way. Did it not quite work it that way? Quite work that way. So it was a three o'clock kickoff. <laughs> it was quite early, but there we are. Well, thank you very much. And hopefully we can um, provide some balm to the wounds of seeing three horses finish second at Ascot over the weekend. But I guess you, you have to be happy in one respect. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Second's never a great place, really. Would that, but you'd rather see these horses come to a big track like that and, and give their best and acquit themselves very creditably, wouldn't you, than seeing them fall out the back of the TV? Oh, of course you would, but to be honest, I hate, I just hate being second. I, I, you, you ask most of your friends, you know, what won the Grand National, and they can all tell you that. They can't tell you this year what was second. But the good thing is, they're all horses who've, who've still got a future. It's not as though they're coming to the end of their they careers, all, they're over-handicapped yeah. no, or whatever. Are, yeah. But it's just, you know, being second is just a hateful place to be. First things first, fantastic to see racing and you getting a, a full back page in today's, uh, in today's Observer. Best bet to combat gambling, teach children bookies odds don't add up. A one-hour lesson would arm youngsters for the wildest regime this side of Las Vegas, says Greg Wood. What, what prompted this? Well, it's something I've written about in the past. I mean, it's not specifically racing as such. I mean, it's more about gambling and how we approach gambling in this country. Um, and also, in particular, how we prepare people for it. Um, when, they, when they reach 18 in this country, they just go out and they have no knowledge of how gambling works, what the pitfalls are. If you look at, say, alcohol is probably the best comparison in the sense that it's something that's all the way through society. It's something that um, is, is part of adult life, but it also has a downside. It can be destructive. And similarly to gambling, which can also be destructive, um, you need, with alcohol, we take an approach which involves regulation mm. in terms of, uh, you know, 18, you, you can't drink till you're 18, pubs can't serve you till you're 18, but also education. And at school, children in their, um, and the PSHE will get lessons about alcohol, the dangers, and also just about sensible drinking, I mean, responsible drinking. When it comes to gambling, there is very little regulation. Uh, we, we have an incredibly soft touch regulatory regime when you look at other countries around the world. 
Uh, most countries around the world, bookmakers are illegal. Um, and that's something that's often forgotten. And it's been particularly uh, soft touch since the Gambling Act of 2005, which swept away a large amount of regulation. Um, and as well as ushering in the fob tees, uh, you've now got obviously advertising, just non-stop advertising around sporting events for bookmakers. But also, no education at all. Gambling never gets mentioned uh, in, in, in class, in school. Uh, children are never told even the basics of, of how, to, how to think about gambling. When these people start offering you, say, offering you 40 to 1 about a corner in a Man United match, why should you be a little bit suspicious about this? Um, and I think it, it needs both. You need, you need both. You need regulation and education, but you need some education. And I, I'm just pointing out that in GCSE maths, uh, children learn about probability. Uh, it's part of the course. They learn that the probabilities of a certain set of events always add up to one. But they're never taught about the most practical application of probability theory in, in your adult yeah. life, or what, certainly one of them, which is when you come to gamble. Is it a utopian ideal to think that more educated gambling could be to the benefit of horse racing and to the detriment of other available gambling avenues? Um, I think very much so in the sense that the other thing you could point out is that there are two very distinct forms of gambling. I mean, the, the maths of it is very simple. There are forms of gambling betting where you have at least some sort of a chance and your judgment plays a part. You, you, you can use your brain, if you like, to make a difference to the outcome or to your long-term outcome. There's also gaming, as in the fob tees, which were masquerading as betting terminals, but are nothing of the sort, they're just roulette where you have no chance of winning in the long term, no chance at all. It'll just take 2% of your money on a steady basis over the course of your life if you keep playing them. And that is a, one way of, uh, of helping people to make an informed choice about, first of all, whether they gamble at all, but also, if they do, what they gamble on. Your children are now 20 and 16, yep. is that right? So you're right in that sweet spot of, of what you're writing about here. Yep. And Henry, you've got kids who are the similar sort of age, haven't you? 20, yeah, 21 and 19. And do they, do they bet more than you did when you were the same age, do you think? Undoubtedly. So get, uh, but, but that's interesting. Not particularly my daughter, that my son age 19, very much so, on his, on his pad, on his tablet. So it's p more part of, so the, accessible. of the late teenage culture now than it was when, when you were oh, that age, when I was that age? Doesn't matter where he is in, where he is in the country, he can have a bet on, unfortunately for him, one of my horses or... Whatever it might be, but you know, he, it's too. It's well, I say it's too easy. It is amazingly easy for him. But do you think that were he not growing up in a racing yard, would racing be sufficiently stimulated for him to bet on? Or, or are I, th I think knowing quite a lot of his friends from he was at um, Cheltenham College, that they get a great kick out of betting on racing. Mm. They are. They love it. They come with him to the races. They are the future, if you like, of British racing, and they are very on it. And they they are they they do love doing it. Well, I wonder if mm. they um, if they all backed Bristol to May yesterday in the well, in the indeed. I mean, one further point that is a, an interesting point because we now do live in a society where uh, most people grow up having no contact with horses whatsoever. Mm. I mean, and if you're looking for a, a mass audience. Betting is the obvious way to get young people interested. That's 
that's how you draw them in. Um, it, there's nothing wrong with that, I don't think. And I'm sure, I'm sure Nathan wants to talk about the way the sport's presented and marketed later on. But in order to, to make this sport appealing, you have to make the gambling on it appealing in the first instance, don't you? You can't mm. simply make racing appealing without the idea of having a bet, can you? Well, I think you, I think you can. I think you don't. I don't think you necessarily have a bet on who's who's going to win badminton uh, horse trials or whatever. I think there are ways of having an an an, an entertaining equine sport, but our one is all about who comes first. <laughs> let's um, let's take a look back on the best racing from from yesterday, and we'll start with the Betfair Chase and a, a second consecutive win in the event for Bristol de May. You don't need me to point him out. The two shades of green, the grey, just got into a lovely rhythm. Rhythm seems to be everything, particularly at this track, track Henry. You, you've run an awful lot of horses at Haydock down the years, and you can tell from you know, quite a long way out when a horse is really sort of in, that, in the rhythm he needs to win. It just greatly changed, Haydock. Greatly changed. People seem to forget this, that it was on the outside of the flat course, and it is now on the inside. They have swapped them around. It is now a very sharp course. It is not such a galloping course as it was. I know the straight, the straight is quite a long galloping straight and things, but it just, it's not the track it was for, for the galloping test. And it's an interesting race because five went to post and four sets of connections, those except Mike Bites, Greg, came out of this race really pleased with the way their horses ran, which is most unusual. It is. I mean, it was a, it was a really good performance. I mean, obviously, it's a, you, you, can, you can see that. Um, and it was a repeat of what he did live. I mean, obviously last year it was very different. The ground was very different and there were doubts about how he would go on the track. Uh, all those were dismissed and he was, he was going to win from a long way out. Um, it was really good run by Native River in second, uh, given that it's been off a long time and, and the track certainly doesn't play to his strengths. Um, I think it was, 15 seconds quicker this year than the handicap chase over the same uh, distance which follows it. Whereas last year, I think Bristol Mai was about 10 seconds quicker. So that suggests that it was certainly right up there with his performance last year, despite the different, different ground. He's had a wind operation, um, which may have brought out a little bit more improvement, or it may at least have helped him to maintain the form that he had. The doubt that everyone's going to have is, will he be able to back this up later on in the season? It's something that he has struggled to do slightly. I know the trainer says he's just a very hard horse to get 100%, and it may be that as the season goes on, it's that much harder every, with every race to get him to 100%. Um, as for my bite, well, it's... <laughs> I suppose we're sort of waiting for some sort of a message from uh, from Seven Barrows, really, because you could point to the fences. The jockeys were talking about the fences earlier on in the day, um, saying they're a bit stiffer than has been the case in the past. I thought Mike Bite certainly did look... He was a little bit cautious, a little bit slow over the first three or four. Once he got going, I thought he actually yeah. jumped pretty well. He came down the straight first time, uh, absolutely jumped 
Brilliantly. I just, well, there were some nice close-ups of him through the race might bite, and I, I just never thought that he was taking Nico mm. de Boinville like he takes him through a race normally. The reins were just that little slacker. His usual sort of verve yeah. wasn't quite there, was he, it? He just was lacking any zest or appetite for it. Yeah. I sometimes wonder when you get a gruelling gold cup like that, and I know he came back and, and won at Aintree, how many times horses will go into top-level competition and put themselves in that place, put themselves in that zone? I must. I think it must come into it. I'm not saying it does necessarily for him. About yesterday, but it just. I'm sure over the years we've seen horses who've been either won or been second or had very very hard races in Welsh nationals or whatever in very grueling conditions, and it takes them a long time to get over it. And they just don't come um, back. And do you find that as a trainer sometimes not you run sure a horse and with Mike Bite in the, as you say he came out and he can't say he didn't disgrace himself at entry. No, exactly. So I don't. I'm not sure that's quite. Quite, quite right for him, but it, it certainly happens. And as regards Thistlecrack, I mean, ostensibly he ran quite an encouraging race, but was there enough there to make you think he could win another really big grade one race? I think he's around about the right price. At, I think he's about 10, 12 to one, is he? Um, he, he ran an interesting, at one point he looked like he might not be going at all, I thought, and then he came right back into it and he was traveling as well as anything. Uh, probably as they turned out of the back. Um, it would be great to think that he could come back to, to where he was. Just where he was is now quite a long time ago. I mean, it, it feels as though it's just things have moved on a bit since then. Uh, even though it was you know, less than two mm. years ago that, that he was winning at Kempton. Um, looking so impressive winning the, um, yeah. winning the King George yeah. as, a, as a novice. Yeah. I mean, Colin Tizard trains him. Colin Tizard also trains <coughs> Native River, the runner-up and the Gold Cup winner. And the lovely thing about interviewing Colin Tizard, Henry, is that it, the, the glass generally is pretty full. It, 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 he's, a, he's a man who, who tends to, to look, look on things pretty positively. A fantastic attitude to being a trainer, <laughs> which is wonderful to listen to, to watch. And he runs his horses and they get on with it. and they just It's, it's lovely to watch. Does it does it sort of make you think about how to um, how to be as a as you, a trainer? You sometimes? watch someone like Colin, and he's just got a lovely. I think it not leading necessarily to to being a trainer, but to life. He's got a very good attitude to life. He enjoys it. He trains his horses to run in their races. He his owners and he gets on with his owners very well. And there you go. And, and sort of, it, it is it is nice to have a, a greater breadth of people who are performing at the at the top level as well. It makes the game more more interesting. I think it's very very important that we have the Colin Tizards and the Nigel Twiston Davises winning these ra winning the, these races. I think it's very important for our for our industry that it's not just one or two people winning mm. the big races. Nicky Henderson joins us on the line now. Nicky, morning. Morning, Nick. Um, a somewhat sobering day in some respects yesterday. Um, most important question is, how is Mike Bite? Nick, he's fine, yeah. It was a, it was a bit of a bombshell. But to be fair, he is he's perfectly sound and bright, and there are no there are no sort of injuries anyway. That's not there's no sort of reason for it behind that. So you just push on from here. It's a long old drive home from Haydock. Um, what were you thinking about on the way back? Um, well, I have to admit, the reason I'd missed the traffic, I did actually fly over the top of it. And so <laughs> it was a slightly less painful, thank goodness it was a rather less painful journey. <coughs> I think I mean, we had a lot of thoughts this morning, and, and actually watching it again, I've little doubt in our mind. Now, I'm not, you know, making excuses is easy, but um, I was at a long chat with Yogi Breisner just about an hour ago. 
because he's a great assessor of these things and he understands what jumping is all about. And there's no doubt to me, in my mind, that he just... He went and, you know, we've, we've, I think you've been discussing the fences. Yeah. I certainly had a look at them after River Wilds Ball. <coughs> and they were big and they were very solid. Um, I personally, my, my belief is that I think he just, he, he rubbed one of the early ones. I think it was the second or the third. And you know how fluent and flowing this horse jumps. And that, there was no rhythm to it yesterday at all. And I think he just nudged one of those fences. Now, we all know that he's a horse that is, you have to mind him a little bit. And I think he was just fresh and well, and he bounded down to one, and it gave him a fright. And if you go back and watch his early days when he was chasing, the first time he ran him at Cheltenham, he just ballooned five fences, and that was the end of it. We had to put him away for a year. And even when he went to Foss Lass for his first novice chase, he did the same thing and got beaten. And then he started to get belief in himself. And I'm afraid, I just think, he just, he just lost his own belief and he lost his confidence a little bit. So he's the, do you think it's fair to say he's the sort of horse that if things aren't just going right for him, he just thinks, mm, well, not we know really. there are sort of, I, I don't think so. I think, I'm going to say, talking to Yogi, he said you could see that he wasn't, he just wasn't as fluent and he was having to work it out. You take out a lot of, in that sense, a lot of mental and physical energy. And he wasn't tired. I just think his game had, had, had gone to pieces mm -hmm. a little bit. Okay. So um, still just try and build him up and get to the King George, essentially. That's yeah, the... and as I said to Yogi, we might just uh, we'll work out together how we just put his confidence together. And I'm not worried about that. Um, it, to be fair, he only had one. No feely came and schooled him on Monday. And as Noel said, well, that's the nice, nicest way you could possibly start a week. I mean, he was brilliant. But obviously, you know, our fences aren't quite what we were jumping yesterday. And I'm afraid they probably just gave him a bit of a, you know, he's such a good jumper. But it's all about confidence. And I just think he lost it. Time's not on our side, unfortunately. But I know you've just been out working Altior and, and Bouva Dare. We await their reappearances um, with bated breath. All okay? All satisfactory? Yeah, good. I mean, the first of the big three was yesterday, and now we've got two more weekends of it. So, um, fingers crossed, it all went very well this morning. Um, anything to, any, any flesh to put on the bones? Did either of them do anything that surprised you, startled you, delighted you? Algeo will always surprise you. I mean, it's nearly unfair. As I said, you'd nearly run, I'd rather run him in the King's Stand than the King George. Um, nothing much goes with him. I mean, but it, it did make sure that Bouvardier had a good honest gallop, which he does need um, because he is a stuffy horse. Uh, he had a little wind up, didn't he? Is that? A, can you detect whether that's made any difference? You can because we were always hearing a little faint whistle, and now you hear nothing. I, I, I don't think it ever affected him, but you just never wanted it to get in the way. And so, but he definitely doesn't. You can't hear him at all now. Luck on Sunday, proudly sponsored by Albasti at Cruel Dubai. Ascot, of course, was the other feature <coughs> meeting yesterday, and the big race was won by another galloping grey. Politolog it was. He might have hit the front a little bit too soon, but he, he jumped his way there, to be honest, Greg, and uh, he had to fend off the resurgent Charbel in the end, which made it an exciting finish. He's a high-class horse, this. He is. He jumped really, really well all the way around. It, it, quite a lot of them. He looked, almost looked like he was hurdling the fences. It, it was so quick, efficient over his fences. 
as you say, he possibly in front a little bit too soon. He's a horse that is <laughs> has in the past looked like he needs to be sort of delivered at the right moment and might want to be in, not want to be in front for too long. Uh, you can't you can't grab the performance as such. Uh, whether he will really be able to do that mm. at three miles is another question because it looks as if I suspect they will be looking at the King George and it's only it's an extra three furlongs he travelled during the race I just looking at the way he travelled I, I wouldn't be entirely convinced that he would be at his best at three miles but who knows I mean you, you can only put him in there Absolutely. and give him a chance so that's what the races are for to find out King George, the six chases at Kempton over Christmas passed are littered with tales of horses who've gone there looking as though they're going to get three miles and haven't got three miles, but there have been one or two who have stepped up gloriously, Desert Orchid being the most obvious example. Yeah, that, and you go back to Emma, you come back with Desi, I was looking at something the other day about Desert Orchid, to, we're on about the ground again with Emma, I think it was his second King George, good to firm. Mm. Which was so which was not, not forget exactly. It it's not abnormal. It wasn't it's unusual go, in those days for, for good to firm to appear. To firm. But if you ran a King George the Sixth festival now at Christmas and the going was good to firm, you'd have two and three runner races all the way all the way through the car, mm. wouldn't you? I think it's always rather fascinating when you get to you say two and three runners, when you get to prize money of quarter of a million, how many runners you do get. <laughs> it's funny how it changes people's opinion. Well, so, yes, I, I, I see what you're driving at. If Politolog was yours, would you come back for the Tingle Creek or go up for the King George or maybe do both? I suspect they'll probably go up, won't they? Mm. I, I, it looks that way on that running yesterday. Kim Bailey I saw afterwards um, and he is seriously consider considering supplementing Charbel as well. Um, he was trying to work out how much it was going to cost him. I said, I don't know. Well, it's not going to cost him anything, well, is it? Not going to, no, he wouldn't do it if it was going to cost him. Perfect. Yeah. These trains um, are very good at spending yeah. people's money. Yeah. So I think it, I mean, if on that running, you'd, you'd, you'd have to say Politolo looks to go that way as well, doesn't he? I think that's a great call for Kim Bailey to, to supplement mm. Sharp. I mean, he's yeah. right back. He gave Baron Alco £10 and a beating mm. at Chepstow. So he's run Politolog to a neck yeah. there. Uh, he, he, now, you know, got several pieces of form that give him a right to be in the race. Uh, you can't... You need the... Horses which have a 10, 12, 14, mm. even 20 to 1 chance to be to, to make the race. It, it wouldn't be a King George if there were just four runners and an odds-on favourite. It, it's not the same sort of race. It needs to be a spectacle. Absolutely. It's the highlight of the Christmas season. Absolutely. You want 10, 12 runners, ideally. And sure, some of them will be relative outsiders, but there's no reason for them not to run. Sharble, there could be a way... There is a way that race could unfold, no doubt, <coughs> which would which would put him there as a, as, a, as a possible winner. Exactly. If you run races over two and a half miles at this time of the year, mm. all anyone's going to ask is, should this horse drop back to two or go up to three? Well, the answer is probably stay at two and a half. I don't know what the answer is as regards if the cap fits, but one man who might know the answer is Harry Fry, because he joins us on the line now. And as he does so, we're going to watch if the cap fits. Apparently make heavy weather of winning the Coral Hurdle, but it might be a bit more complex than that, because it was a strangely run race. Harry, good morning. Good morning, Nick. So what, what were your initial reactions to this performance? Uh, well, relief, uh, <laughs> first and foremost, because obviously he went off odds on favourite, and on, on paper he's looked to stand a very good chance. But um, I think we learned a bit more about him yesterday, and, and probably, well, there's no doubt in our Noel's mind, our mind, that um, we didn't see him at his be very best yesterday. He just, 
he ran in snatches. Um, it's only two weeks after the Elite. He was a horse last year that took plenty of time between races. Um, so we, we've seen a different side to him. He's, he's really toughed it out, uh, made up a lot of ground from the turn, home turn, and um, he's, he's dug deep. Um, so really, it, it, it sort of has thrown up more questions than answers in some ways. And um, yeah, it's, uh, it's a nice dilemma to have to, to weigh up whether we go back in trip, up in trip, or as you just said about uh, some of the two and a half mile chases stay at the two and a half mile, which funnily enough, we did even, uh, Jason McGuire and I were, were discussing the Aintree hurdle uh, before they even went yeah. to post yesterday. And I mean, that probably looks looks the race for him in the spring but um we've yet to have a proper discussion and plot uh, plot the route for the rest of the season i just want to go back and have a if i can look at the last 50 yards again of this race because noel yeah. brought him stand side and just keep your eye on on noel feely i don't know if you're watching this harry but we can keep our eyes on noel feely in the in the blue and yellow colors and just as they pass the post his left hand just see the reaction now this is a man who rides a lot of big race winners week in week out is hugely experienced not that often that i see this kind of reaction from him well i i haven't spotted that yet and no, i'm not watching it as we speak so um no but look i mean it's great there's a big race on a saturday uh, Noel had a fantastic day he was one of three winners and um that's what we're all in this sport for to win big races like that on on the big occasions and um i mean noel's uh yeah, he's got experience on his side, to say the least, and that's why he's still going to be riding good horses like that, winning winning good races, and it, it's a thrill for us all. You've prepared a horse to win a champion hurdle before, Rock on Ruby. Do you think this horse is more talented than him? Uh, there's definitely similarities, um, because at home, he, he and, and to be honest, he surprised us last year with the speed he did show over two miles, and um, uh, he, he's similar in that they don't, doesn't set the world alight on the gallop at home um, and, and Rock on Ruby was very much the same and, and they seem to say the best for the race course which is always always the right way around um, so yeah it's, there are similarities I mean obviously Rock on Ruby won the Coral Hurdle that was his final ever run three years ago um, so it's sort of, yeah we're different ends of the scale really with that was Rock on Ruby bowing out this is if the cat fits only hopefully just mm. starting out this is Fifth, only his fifth ever run over hurdles so um, yeah he's relatively inexperienced and uh, so well let's hope he can prove to be as good as Rock on Ruby would be thrilled. So there was talk afterwards that Noel wanted to go to the Christmas hurdle is that something you share? Uh, well it's I mean he obviously won on the card last year the novice hurdle um, and won well that day and I mean Noel's been very keen on that race since really we returned the horse returned in training in the summer um so yeah it's, it's no I mean it, that's what I said initially it's a, it's a nice dilemma to have uh go back in trip up in trip um we haven't really discussed it in detail yet um but uh, so yeah we'll enjoy plotting the rest of his campaign but and just finally on him just to just to put a button on it, in terms of his raw ability, his raw talent, and the excitement that you get out of watching him, you believe he is a viable horse to be talked of in terms of a champion hurdle. Well, I, look, I think on yesterday's bare form, um, I mean, as good a horse as Old Guard is, we were getting six pounds from him, and we only beat him well, not even two lengths. So, uh, 
we've got a long way to go. Um, he's got to improve enormously to be either a champion hurdle or, or a stairs hurdle horse. He's, he's still got plenty to find, but um, uh, we've got a lot of belief in him, and, and hopefully he can he can keep progressing. Luck on Sunday, proudly sponsored by Albasti at Cruel Dubai. You were organising all the the jockey cam. You, you decided to put one on, on Late Nass Blue. He was riding Many Clouds, the horse that you rode out on the gallops every week. We heard an awful lot about the horse on the programme last week because Oliver Sherbers was our special guest yeah. and he talked brilliantly about the horse's career, the end of his career and how it impacted on, on everyone. Am I right in thinking that you, were, after this, were known in Lambourne as the judge? <laughs> I knew he'd give you some ammunition. Yeah, um, leading up to that race, he'd worked really bad and uh, I was thinking, you know, maybe we shouldn't run him. And Oliver was kind of, kind of agreeing with me, so he, you know, he's, he, can, he can back that up as well. But um, thankfully, Trevor said, come on, let's, let's run him and, and see what happens. And, uh, you know, obviously, he was ridden by the great Leighton Aspel, one of the amazing riders of, of, of our generation. And um, he would have looked after him anyway, but him going and winning was just amazing. And, um, and what, a, what a horse that uh, he's, he's been and uh, what a journey we've had with him. And I didn't, I didn't notice at any point after the race you saying, yeah, I definitely advised them not to run the horse because he'd work shocking during the... Uh, no, I didn't, no. It was um, very embarrassing and, uh, you know, we, we always get it wrong, don't we, sometimes with horses, but, uh, but Oliver was, has been giving me some stick about that. Is that why there. you felt emboldened to put one of them... There were four cameras in the race. Is that why you felt emboldened to put one of them on Leighton's helmet? Because you thought, well, we've got nothing to lose here. He's not going to do any good. Well, there was, a li there was a little bit of that, but also the side of things that... Uh, Manny Clouds was a huge part of our journey with the jockey cam. When I was mm. testing the camera... It it was always on him because I was riding him. I've been riding him since, um, you know, since he came into the yard, uh, you know, as a four-year-old. I mean, so um, extremely lucky to be part of that horse's journey. I mean, you know, thankfully Oliver and T um, Sherwood just give us that access to him when we were, when we were filming him and uh, leading up to that second Grand National yeah. after his second win, and uh, and then we were lucky enough to uh, have all that footage to to piece that um, you know film together, and and then it went and won the award in New York, which was amazing for us and put us all on the map you know so just tell me a little bit more about that well basically it was um the jockey club had uh, commissioned us to, to to tell the story of him going to his second grand national because no horse has ever done it but there was a there was a hope and there was this uh, dream that you know if he, if this mm. happens let's let's film it anyway and let's see what happens so we did uh, we did some interviews with uh, with all the key players and um and he was um so, well, Oliver was, was great to uh, give us all this access and uh, we, we, we spent a lot of time with, with Clouds and we had all that footage to, to piece together this uh, tribute film that we then took to New York and um, it won, a, won a, um, an award out there. So it was, it was fantastic to show it to a new audience and um, it's been a great journey for us all. Uh, how do you think that connected with people? Well, and this is my point, I mean, it's... Many Clouds was one of those horses that everybody kind of took to their hearts, you know what I mean? It was, um, I think, the fact that Oliver Sherwood trains him, Trevor Hemmings owns him, and, and Leighton winning a second national, that, that all helped. But for some reason, they all latched onto him, and, uh, and it, was great to, uh, it was great to kind of show that journey. I mean, you know, he was, he was, he was a huge part of my life. I mean, I went through, um, in 2016, I went through you know, a tough divorce, and um, he was a huge, huge part of me, um, you know, getting get me through that, do you know what I mean? It was, uh, it was a big thing to be part of that journey, because every morning I was getting up and I was going and riding out the Grand National winner. I mean, how often does that happen? It's, it was amazing, because 
I've ridden some amazing horses in my lifetime. I worked for Mark Johnson for mm. a, a long time, riding the likes of Attraction and Shamadel and horses like that. But there was something about that horse that really took to everyone's hearts. And and uh, even now, people, well, you mentioned it earlier, you know, you always say it's the, the work rider of many clouds, not the visual director of Equine Productions, but I'm quite happy to uh, keep that title. Well, it's quite nice to be able to metaphorically ride both horses, if you like, isn't it? Yeah, exactly, yeah, exactly. And, um, you know, Equine Productions is, uh, is, is on a is on an upward curve at the moment, you know. Interesting, you're talking about how he, he helped you through a difficult time in your life. Um, do you think we make enough of, of what horses can do for people? No, not at all. Um, we've just recently made a uh, short piece on uh, Kayleigh Willicott with uh, Lola, and, um, you know, what a transformation that's been for her. And I think we don't show enough how these equine athletes and human athletes you know change our change our hearts change our souls you know what i mean because it's i know it sounds a little bit wishy-washy to some people but i think that's what that's what a great thing is that to get across to a, a new audience because it's usually just about the results mm. and, and and stuff like that so let's give them something to latch onto, something different give them a story give them a narrative to help them enjoy our journey and and also enjoy the sport in a different way because it isn't always about the wagering side of things and it isn't always just about result it's about the journey getting there and the journey afterwards and that's what's great about our sport it's got lots of different great you know great stories to tell from a television point of view what i'm fascinated in is how you feel that the actual race can be brought to life more because there's that age-old debate as to whether you want to see every horse in the field and anyone who's had a bet on the race and a lot of the owners trainers whatever anyone who's got any wants to see all the horses all the time. But by doing that, of course, you compromise to some extent the the level to which you can you can use artistry to try and make it more engaging. Ha, have you got any ideas as to how to strike the right balance? Yeah, yeah. I mean we've got we've got lots of ideas. I mean like I say, when we when we first started the company, we, we were a huge part of getting drones onto racetracks. You know, mm. we, them cool drone shots that you see now, you know, aerial shots of uh, of the horses, you know, turning for home. You know, we were we were part of that, working with the BHA, making sure that it was, it was safe to have drones on race courses. So that that was one way of doing it. And the other side of things is is second screen. You know, we we're in a social media world now. TV isn't the only medium to watch watch the uh, watch our sport. Second screen, so you could have you know jockey cam uh, on second screen, which they did in at, at the Breeders' Cup a, mm -hmm. a couple of weeks ago. It was great to um, people could watch it on YouTube Live or, or Facebook Live and things like that. So that you can watch the actual race and still get the get the journey of watching your horse uh, compete and where it finishes. But you can also add in other elements to help bring the whole sport to life. And it's and the great thing that's always been um, a part of our our sport is is the features telling them stories, so we can enjoy the journey and and then expect a result in some way to, to enjoy the sport, you know? What feature that you filmed has surprised you the most or delighted you the most? It's a tough question, really, because they've, um, they've all been fun to do. Um, I mean, I know they've all been brilliant. Though, yeah, they're, <laughs> they're not all been brilliant. They're not all been brilliant. Um, definitely the, just recently, the, the, the Lawler uh, thing with Kelly Wilcott, because that was, um, it had a, it's a strong story. It has a, a great meaning behind it, you know. With, I used to bump into Richard quite a few times on the racetrack and he was, um, you know, bigger than life, but obviously there was something darker going on behind, and um, that was um, that that was a, that was a cool piece to put together and, and tell her story and tell her journey journey towards uh, where she's going with it with that horse, because he could be you know he could be really special that horse, and um, and everybody can latch onto it and enjoy that journey with her. I mean, I'm just watching you at work here. You evidently love what you do. You love the business of film. You love you're interested in the medium. Yeah. 
in and of itself. Was that always the case? Did that come before the idea to start up a, a production company involved in filming filming horses? Do you think you would have gone into the film business anyway, irrespective of your of your of your love of the animal? Well, growing up where I did in Middleham, North Yorkshire, you know, you don't go to film school. You know, you mm. become a builder or you become a farmer. Or, or you, you work got, for Mark Johnson. Or you work for Mark Johnson, yeah. And um, so film school wasn't on the, on the radar at all. So um, it was something that I've always had a passion for. But till, till Dave James and uh, Sam Fleet came into my, you know, into my life, that wasn't going to be the case. I needed those two people to help me tell the stuff I wanted to tell. And it's not all down to me. We have an amazing team at home. I know it seems to be the same, everyone says the same thing, but it, it's so true, you know, you can't do it on your own. It's, um, we have a great team of editors and not, they're not all horsey. And that's the, that's the great thing But I'm going, you know, I want to replace, you know, this shot of a, a snowboarder, let's say, and, and replace it with a horse and jockey. Yeah. How do I get there? You know, what, what's the process? And I can't do that on my own. I've, it's the guys working at Equine Productions that help us get there. Uh, just tell me a bit about your, your time working for, for Mark Johnston. What did that teach you about life, about riding, about being part of a team? Work ethic. You wouldn't meet two people, Mark and Deirdre, work ethic. I mean, they live and they breathe it. I mean, it's, um, we've just finished a documentary on, 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 those, on the journey that they've had. Um, so it, work ethic is one. And, and the other one is, is having systems in place and... Um, making sure that everybody knows what they're doing. You know, I've worked in some stable yards, you know, it's, uh, we're walking around the, the yard in the morning, it's in its work morning, and, and the trainer hasn't really decided what that, what's happening yet because they're doing it by feel, whereas Mark has set up a system where he could train 100 horses or 500 horses, and that is the system that he's set in place. So that's one thing I've, I've taken from it. The other thing is, is, is team. You, Mark Johnson, you know, could be not on this earth tomorrow, it, that place would still run exactly the same because he's got it set up to how it should be and, and that's what's made it such a successful yard, churning out winners. People call it a factory in a, in a, in a weird way. I think it's, that's a positive thing because factories run so well and that's one thing that he's done. He's made that place run like clockwork and it's absolutely amazing really. Luck on Sunday, proudly sponsored by Albasti Ecruel Dubai. Richard, you started here in 1979, officially working here. What's your first childhood memory of Newbury? I was actually born on the place. Uh, my, my mother and father um, both lived here. My mm. father was the uh, mansion secretary. And in those days, uh, he, before I was born, he was, we actually lived in the stable cottage. Right. And then just after I was born, uh, they moved to the, the big house, South Mead, which was a big white house on the side of the race course. And so I've actually lived on site uh, for 56 years. Mm. And then when we started the development, uh, I had to move off site because uh, obviously the house was part of the development and had to be knocked down. Mm. But as a, as a child, I was, you know, on my bicycle down here, mucking around the stands, and we'd always go down and play in the, the kiddies' playground around the bottom end. Mm. So I had a great, great life mm. as a youngster. Um, I was born and bred here. So following your father around the place, were you always hell-bent and working here when you were older? Not completely, because I, I did a knowing in agriculture and loved my livestock farming. And I actually wanted to go into livestock farming, but 
as I came out of college, two things happened. Firstly, uh, I could see that uh, unless you, you had a lot of family money and uh, all the family was actually renting a farm or owning a farm, then there was no way I was ever going to get into it in a big way. Um, so I started looking for different things. Uh, the other side of things is that um, I managed to cut the top of my finger off in a combine that summer um, oh, before I, I started work here in the, the autumn. I've got my finger here, it's, it's all connected back on. But it was uh, just one of those things I think that put me off slightly. And then my father was looking for an assistant and so everything just fell into place mm. and I thought, well, I know the place inside out. Nobody needs to show me around because I probably know it better than the person mm. showing me around. Um, and hence that's why I just stayed. And working with your father as assistant, obviously family, was it yeah, good? Everybody says that, you know, working with father, yes, it can be hard work. It can be, you know, you've always got one thing or another. But we actually worked very well as a team. Um, he very much wanted to do his accounts in the office. And so I was left to run things outside. Um, not only was I running the estate as far as the track was concerned and, and everything else out there is concerned, um, but I was also looking after the carpenters, the painters around the stands and doing the maintenance within there as well. Mm. Um, and the team was very small. I mean, there was only the two managers, was my father and myself. Uh, and then we had, uh, in the office, we had a, a, a clerk that did uh, a bookkeeping clerk and a part-time secretary and a part-time membership secretary was my mother. Next year would also be my family's 100th year. Here? Here, in Newbury. My great uncle started here in 1919. Um, so even before my father, uh, who joined him after the war as an assistant, yeah. funnily enough, uh, you know, it's been a little bit of a family trade. And I hope that we've left, uh, you know, the legacy of Newbury, we've left in good stead. Luck on Sunday, proudly sponsored by Albasti Ecruel Dubai. The bet for Ascot Chase in terrific style. Super Sunday rallying, but Yanwa proves his stamina and wins the Liverpool hurdle. So Royal is going to win impressively in the Henry VIII. Primitivo leads into the closing stages now. He's come the near side, but he's far enough clear. Primitivo by Fulet. The last in the Hennessy, Slad plays his over clear. In a performance full of Elan, exuberance has run them ragged and will be one of the widest marching winners in Hennessy history. So many special moments in the glorious career of Alan King, trading since 99, 1600 winners and counting. It's been a special time, hasn't it? It's gone very well. It's gone very quickly as mm. well, Nick. Um quite frightening how the years pass, but uh, no, we've had a lot of fun along the way. 
just when you were watching that montage there, Primitivo winning at, at Royal Ascot, it puts you in an elite band of trainers who've had success at Royal Ascot and at the Cheltenham Festival, and you said that meant as, as much as any of them. Well, Royal Ascot's been one of my favourite, is one of the favourite weeks of, of the year for me. I've been going probably for about 30 years. David Nicholson took me when I was still assistant, and I, I just absolutely, I've always loved good flat racing. Um, I never thought I'd have a winner there, but it was, it was a special, special moment. And he's now in Hong Kong. He is. He's still um, doing quite well. Gold Mount. I Gold think Mount. Been. He's now called. Um, he's won a Group Three. He's been placed in one or two Group Ones, and he's done very well. Yeah. But a very special day. You mentioned David Nicholson. <clears throat> you were assistant to him, essentially for the first part of your your adult life, and and then you took over the reins, and then you moved to to Barbary Castle. We talked to Henry Daly about the extent to which he had to step out of the shadows of being the guy that used to work for Tim Forster. When did you sort of feel that you you? stop becoming the guy that used to be assistant trainer to David Nicholson because he was such a towering figure. Exactly, you know, he was twice champion and um, I suppose it, it, when, we, when we left Jack Dawes, I trained there for six months and um, had to move on or moved on to Barbary and, you know, we are 20, I think we are 24 horses when I started and so you, you, we were out on our own but we spoke every day. Uh, there wasn't a day going pa gone past that we, we wouldn't have spoken at some stage and when he was at his best is probably when we had a really bad day, you know, two or three favourites had got beaten and I would be very down and he could always lift you on the way back, you know, you'd give him a call on the way home in the car. and It meant an awful lot. Sort of to, to outsiders, he had this reputation of being quite a terrifying figure, but it, it always struck me how the people who worked for him worked for him for a long, long time. They sort of engendered an enormous loyalty in that team of people. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, when he retired, um, he had a lovely cottage up in the Cotswolds near um, Still in the World. And, you know, we call him the way back from Warwick. And I know Dickie Johnson and Robert Thornton and people would... Uh, would always call in and see him from time to time, and he absolutely adored that, you know. He followed their careers right the way through, and, you know, we still miss him. And you still get that feeling from all of those guys, when I was at the Dukes, when I was at the Dukes. It was obviously a, a good group of you at the time, similar ages, similar stages of life, and you, you, you sort of kept that camaraderie going. Very much so, yeah. You know, obviously Dickie, as we've mentioned, and Chalk, and um, Warren Marsden was there, and Mark White, my travelling head lad, you know, as we worked together there, um, right the way through, you know. Gordon Clarkson and a real good group and uh, everyone had our moments with him you know I'm not saying it was all a bed of roses but uh, you know we, we were, he was very loyal and it's something you don't forget. So what was the culture? What was the culture like there? Oh you had to graft. Manners, um, he wanted everything very tidy. I mean don't ever pull out with dirty boots or anything like that. You were sent back in and he set the standards and uh, I think that's what's lacking in a lot of places today you know and life in general today. but. And is that something that you've tried to carry on? Is there a, a bit of the old school in you, even though you're not that old? I'd like to think so. Um, I mean, God forbid anyone pulls out with shavings and a horse's tail because they're sent straight back. Just little things. I like the horses pulled out smart and, and very rarely happens. You know, it, it's, uh, it's hopefully done properly. We wouldn't do the, the, the evening stables like... Um, the old days, you know, I, I don't, I don't stand them up or anything like that. I'll, I'll try and go around maybe once a week and just check the legs. And but this, the old days used to stand up. It take for take hours, and each horse was looked at with the rugs off and given a couple of carrots. And you know, you were finishing at half past six, quarter to seven some nights. But um, I don't think you get away with that now. What's your fondest memory of of your time as assistant to to the Duke? <sighs> Difficult question, really. We had some marvelous days, I suppose. Um, Charter party winning a gold cup was very special, and some of the some of the days with old Viking flagship as well. You know, uh, I think the race at Aintree. Oh yeah. The only person that thought he'd won was Adrian Maguire, 
and uh, when he sat to win and the freeze frame came up, I think Adrian changed colour. <laughs> it was very tight. I think it was a nose. You could, probably didn't have a nose in those days, but it was very tight. You really couldn't tell it. It no. was him, deep sensation, and the third wasn't far off, Martha's son. Martha's son, yeah. It was a tremendous horse race. Three great champion chasers mm. jumping, jumping the last fence. You said about moving to Barbary Castle with just the, the, the 24 horses. Did you think at that point, right, I'm on my own now, I... Uh, did you have the confidence within you to think that you could make it to where you where you ended up making it? I don't know. I was just probably stubborn enough that we had to have a go. But I mean, you know, Rich and I left. Henry, my son, was only six months old at the time. We had no money. Um, two owners uh, lent me uh, 25,000. Weatherby's bank gave me an overdraft and we had to start from scratch and buy head collars. You can imagine just mm. setting up and... Uh, Anyway, it seemed to go very well. We got a few winners on the board and numbers, I, I, I don't know why it happened, but the numbers really did take off. And there were 50, 52 boxes, I think, when I arrived and we've got 130 now. And that happened all pretty, pretty rapidly? Pretty rapidly, within two or three years, yeah. And did you just get the feeling that you were somebody that people wanted to be involved with, wanted to have horses in training with, you were at the right stage of your life, you were young, you had a young family, you were sort of go yeah, forward. Yeah, I think if, if any, any young trainer that starts and gets a bit of success, they will get supported. And there's a lot of, I'm not training for a lot of the people that did send me horses then. There's a lot of people will go to a new new trainer, you know. Uh, and we filled up that way. And uh, fortunately, we managed to keep the numbers up, really. And I remember Paul Nichols each and every season used to put the hex on you by saying, oh, Alan King will definitely be my biggest danger for champion trainer. You're wincing at, at me reminding you of that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think... Um, I don't think that's ever going to happen, but he, yeah, he sort of nobbled me a bit, didn't he? <laughs> Did you still have aspirations? Do you still have aspirations to be champion trainer? Or no. Is, no. No. Um, especially now because we, you know, we, we probably weaken the hand a little bit that, you know, we've now got 50, 60 flat horses and I enjoy that. And it's very good. I mean, it's mainly, mainly from a business point of view that um, that's how the flat horses started. I mean, I, when I went to Barbary, Jim Brown, who was a great old owner of the Dukes and a supporter of mine, and he was an accountant and... He'd done a bit of work looking after Charlie Mann training, and he said, right, how many summer jumpers are you going to have? And I said, well, I'm not going to have any, because the Duke never had summer jumpers. Well, he said, you're going to have to do something. And I had no idea about profit and loss accounts and spreadsheets. And that's when the flat started, and we bought three two-year-olds, or a yearling and two two-year-olds. And, I mean, they turned out to be superstars, really. I mean, all three of them were very successful. Um, how Hill won as a tour at Newmarket, he won at Ascot at three. He was fifth in the Triumph. Trouble at Bay won five juvenile hurdles, was favourite for the Triumph mm -hmm. hurdle. And the third one, Sal Salina, really, he was the best of the three and was actually favourite for the e-ball and finished fourth. But it was only to try and keep something going through the summer to bring a bit of income in. Uh, and you soon learn when you're running your own business that you, you need to do something like that. I mean, how important is, is having some financial acumen relative to, to actually knowing how to, how to train a four-legged animal to run fast? Oh, I think very importantly, and, and we've got, we've, I've got a very good accountant, Mike O'Neill, who's a good friend as well now, and basically by the sort of third week of the following month, I know how much we've made or lost the month before, mm. and you know, you can just tighten up if something's out of kilter, you know? Uh, I think very important, and I, I know as much as I love this job, I wouldn't be doing it if I wasn't making some money. It, Scotsman coming out of me, probably. <laughs> is, it, is that always in your temperament? You say the Scotsman coming out in me. Were you, have you always been quite careful like that? I think so, yeah. You know, we started with nothing, so it's nice to have a few quid and look after the family, which are very important to me, you know. Um, I think that's been a huge part of the 
success we've had that I've always had a very good and great wife that's very supportive and two smashing kids and uh, even when things are going badly I can usually switch off at night I've never answered the phone after six o'clock ever um, and I think it helps you how do you unwind because it's so all-consuming and now you're going to be training probably some pretty high-class flat horses as well as a lot of top-class jumpers. Where's the, where does the off switch come? I know you say you can relax at night. Well, yeah, switch off at night and enjoy a good meal and a bottle of wine. And I'm very, I like to get to bed early as well. I mean, I've been in bed at half eight, nine o'clock most nights. Um, we do a fair bit of shooting through the winter, which is great fun. Um, but I've, someone just told me that they actually you really don't like sport. I've, I've lost track of just about any other sport now. I've never watched football, don't watch rugby, and used to watch a fair bit of the darts, and even <laughs> given that up now. But Is that just because racing's so all-consuming that you just haven't got time for it, or things get in the way? I or? think so. I mean, it's, there's so much of it now. And even a lot of racing, I, you, you can't keep track of it. You know, 10 years ago, you would know exactly who was training winners, who was riding them. Now you really haven't got an idea. It's, it's just wall-to-wall, -wall and I, I don't think it's better for the great for the sport but there we are that's where we are in this day and age you mentioned your family your now your daughter rode the winner of the charity race at epsom she did not yeah. so long ago and she not <clears throat> long past her 16th birthday had she uh not long no so she just started a levels um she's riding out three mornings a week for me in the week school's been very good actually that she i think tuesday wednesday thursday she doesn't have to be until sort of 9 30 so she can do one lot oh, that's that sounds she ran three lots yesterday but she's back to her other sort of hobby the, the eventing today but um i'll probably try and see if we get her a lady amateur license for next year uh, how much pride do you feel uh, the way her career is unfolding because she was she rode as an individual didn't she in the in the pony championships is that yeah, right? the, the, the european the, championships the european pony championships yeah she was there so no, I, we went up to Bev, um, it was near beverly and no very proud um but i think she's she's got the racing bug now not that mother's too happy about that but there we are it looks like you might have won that that battle i haven't tried i'm just look i'll just go along with it and Try and keep both of them happy. But would you be ha would you be happy if she pursued as a career as a jockey? Yeah, not as long as it's not over jumps, I would be petrified. Well, you look at the the female jockeys now doing oh, doing well wonderfully jumps, well, yeah. yeah. But I'm not sure my nerves could take uh, watching my own daughter going round over fences. How do your nerves take a a high profile day's racing? How do your nerves take a Cheltenham Festival day or a big day when you've got lots of important runners and lots of owners to look after? Um, probably better than it used to be. Um, I think the more, obviously, if you've got favour, I'm probably worse if I go to one of the small tracks and I've got three to one on favour or four to one on. That's because you know that anything less than a win is a, mm. is a failure. So, um, but I think we're better than we used to be now. So, yeah. It always struck me, sort of watching you, say, 10, 12 years ago, you, you were someone who put a lot of pressure on yourself. You would take things quite to heart. Mm. Probably is, slightly better now. Is that a fair assessment of those times? I think you grew up and just, yeah. I think a few years ago I was dreadful. Um, you didn't want to get anywhere near me after one had got beaten. But then, of course, you have to look after your owners at the same time. Yeah, but I've so. usually had about five minutes to walk away. I never watch a race with owners um, and keep counting to ten till we try and calm down a little bit. There'll be a few laughing if they're watching this that it doesn't always work. Who, who might? No, certain owners that have been on the receiving end. <laughs> <that>. <laughs> but you've done very well, in which case, to keep 
revivifying to keep owners, to keep owners coming in. It's not, you know, as you say, you get your fly-by-night guys who come in at the beginning of your career and they're there for five minutes and then they're off to the next guy and the next younger person and then... Yeah, but I think nowadays that, you know, a lot of them have been with me for a long, long time and we're good friends as much as anything. Um, you enjoy their company and, and um, I think you do a better job if you are friends as well because you're not frightened to pick up the phone and say, look, I'd just like to give this horse another week or two or we've had a problem and, you know... Uh, We've got very close, and you know, I mean, the fields, and this is Prouting, and people, you know, they've been with me from day one, and it means a lot. Luck on Sunday, proudly sponsored by Albasti Equiwell Dubai. You've been listening to the Luck on Sunday podcast, the weekly digest of the best bits from Luck on Sunday, the program that brings you the best guests and insights from around the racing world.